Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. I'm Emily, and I'm joined by Megan. We're missing Ian today, sadly. I had to get up at four in the morning to take him to the airport this morning for... He's got a little work trip, and he sadly, I I realized as I opened our reading for today that he is literally missing the payoff, the conclusion. It's more or less the conclusion. I mean, I I don't know. There's an epilogue. This is it, isn't it? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to be perfectly honest. I couldn't bear where Tolstoy leaves us and then turns to an epilogue. I just couldn't bear it. It was like he stopped short of giving us the full (laughs) conclusion that I would find satisfying. And so I looked ahead into the epilogue, and we will circle back after yet another foray into philosophy. He will step back to to the characters and give us some more of them. So I felt better knowing that, that Ian was going to miss this one section. (laughs) Otherwise, it was a little bit like, we maybe should cancel, you know? (laughs) Well, I thoroughly enjoyed this. You know, Ian and I, a couple nights ago, we watched the new Batman with Robert Pattinson. Ooh, I haven't seen that yet. It was, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, maybe for another time. That. But mostly, you know, Paul Dano plays the villain, the Riddler. Oh, right? yes, I forgot that. And he wears his crazy Zodiac killer mask for most of the movie. And I'm about to, I, I'm not like going to spoil anything. So yeah, for those who are don't, concerned, don't I'm not. But I am going to say one small detail which is there is, there comes a point and it's a three hour long movie so it's a point very deep in that uh he takes his mask off and i was he, i mean he's playing a creek a creepy creepy villain he's bringing in all of his there will be blood prowess in his <laughs> role and i was so delighted to see pierre's face when the unmasking came i was like Pierre. Your response was totally inappropriate in the theater. <laughs> so inappropriate. <laughs> I love that. I feel that way about Pierre. Whenever I see his name on a page, it's a little bit like seeing his face and I just feel all warm. <laughs> it just makes me want to watch the conclusion of the BBC series again, you know? Yeah, me too. I couldn't quite remember how they managed it and elements of these chapters recalled it to mind. And I just think everything about the way that that BBC miniseries adapted it was so faithful and beautiful. So good. Well, our reading for today opens with uh, chapter 16 of part four. And in our last reading, we ended with Pierre kind of coming to the realization that he is in love with Natasha. And now we kind of continue his conversation with Princess Maria and Natasha after he's realized it is, in fact, Natasha who's in the back of the room. And we kind of uh, are in on his his thoughts in that mm. time. What did you what did you take away from this? 
Oh, man. So, so many things. You know how you read with a pencil in your hand and you're just underlining things that you think are thematically significant or just things that you think are beautiful? Well, I had to stop myself because I was just reading (laughs) along underlining everything, at which point your underline doesn't mean anything anymore. I have to confess that there's actually a quote from our reading for today that, I mean, here we are. We've been discussing War and Peace for two years. I now have a poster in our bedroom that has one of Pierre's quotes from this section. Oh, I remember that poster. I've actually been watching for that quote, knowing that you had that on your (laughs) wall and wasn't sure where it was going to come in and could not be more pleased. Which quote is it, Emily? So beautiful. All right. Well, it jumps a little ahead, but it sets a good tone for what follows. It's in chapter 17 uh, on page 1118 when Pierre is talking to Natasha and telling her about his experiences as a prisoner. And he is contemplating whether or not he would do it all again. He says, They say misfortunes, sufferings, said Pierre. Well, if someone said to me right now this minute, do you want to remain the way you were before captivity or live through it all over again? For God's sake, captivity again and horse meat. Once we're thrown off our habitual paths, we think all is lost, but it's only here that the new and the good begins. As long as there's life, there's happiness. There's much, much still to come. I'm saying that to you, he said, turning to Natasha. Oh, so beautiful. I'm actually glad that we're starting with that quote because I do think it puts into perspective just about everything that that I think we're going to talk about today. The back and forth between Pierre and Natasha and the responses that they call out of one another mutually are a contemplation of suffering. And I think they each come to, whether consciously or not, they come to this conclusion that they wouldn't change all that they've been through. And it's, um, it's kind of a cathartic experience to share their sufferings with one another. And it's one of the ways that they realize their, their love because of shared suffering. Yeah. It feels like a lot of the things that we've been thinking about the relationship between Andre and Pierre are kind of confirmed in this section. Uh, We have been talking about the differences in the way that Andre approaches the, this concept of love or death, um, his his idea of the meaning of the world and how it's very generalized and how Pierre's is very particular uh, and I thought that just that's all over the place in this section. But especially I was thinking of when uh, Maria and Natasha are talking and uh, Maria says, they're, they're two very different men. Isn't it true that, that two different men are usually friends? And that's the case here. But Pierre is marvelous. Yeah, I loved that. I wondered what Maria was was trying to emphasize when she says that. Natasha brings it up. She says, isn't it crazy how they're so different? These two are not alike at all. Let's emphasize how different they are. And Maria is quick to intervene and say, yes, and Pierre is marvelous. Given what comes later in the passage and the struggle that we see in Princess Maria to support Pierre and Natasha's love, I think it's beautiful that her first response is, let me affirm to you how marvelous I think he is and... I approve. I'm going to have my own separate wrestling because my brother has is, you know, I mean, it's understanding. Right. Mm-hmm. Conceding the field now to a new love, but I thought it was lovely. Well, in the same way Pierre finds himself jealous of Andre, right? His best friend in the whole world who's dead, but he's jealous of all the experiences that they had together. There's just some human feeling. 
I loved the line. He says, now he felt jealous of her past. Now he reproached himself. Now he forgave himself for it. (laughs) It was all in one sentence. And I thought, yeah, I identify with every step of that process. (laughs) My favorite part was when he asks Prince, Princess Maria if it's possible that Natasha could love him. And she hedges and hems and haws and finally says yes. And he says, no, it can't be. I'm so happy. No, it can't be. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Just that repetition I thought was so precious. So precious. Oh, so precious. I want to jump right into the conversation about Princess Maria. But I feel like... Yeah, please do. Well, in that scene in particular, I understood Maria. I really did. But I also was annoyed with her. Like she's saying out loud to Pierre, I think that she will love you. I know that she loves and she catches herself. I know that she will love you. But go to Petersburg. Even as we hear her interior dialogue saying the following, she was going to say that to speak to Natasha of love now was impossible. But she stopped because it was the third day since she'd seen by the suddenly changed Natasha Not only that Natasha would not be offended if Pierre spoke to her of his love, but that she wished only for that. So it feels like Maria is wrestling with two opposing goals. One, get Pierre and Natasha together because you're the witness of their love. You can see it playing out before you and you have the chance as a friend to affirm it for Pierre right now and say, go for it. But then also she's the grieving sister and doesn't want this to happen. Is that a misreading of the situation? Is that why she says, go to Petersburg? I need some time personally? I kind of took it that way too. I don't know. I mean, maybe another thing that could be going on is that Tasha has a history to consider and maybe we're just making sure that uh, her reputation, like this marriage doesn't look like her running away with Anatole. That's a charitable reading, but that might be a little stretched. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know, though, because when Natasha does, when Maria goes to Natasha and says, here's what's gone on and here's what Pierre has said. And basically, I affirm to you in private, he is in love with you. And Natasha is so, so happy. But she catches herself because she sees the sadness in Maria's face. And she says, he's going to Petersburg, as if she did not understand. But looking intently into the sad expression of Princess Maria's face, she guessed the reason for that sadness and suddenly began to cry. Marie, she said, teach me what to do. I'm afraid to be bad. I'll do whatever you say. Teach me. So on the one hand, I was mad in that moment. I thought, don't manipulate Natasha out of this momentarily, like in this moment, discovered happiness. She was dead a moment ago and now she's alive again. And you call yourself her friend. How dare you? But the idea of protecting her reputation, uh, encouraging uh, a slow entry into a brand new love. I don't know. That helps me a little bit. I was mad at Maria, to yeah. be perfectly honest. It is probably wise, though, you know? Yeah. They've only been hanging out for three days. I mean, you and I just taught Romeo and Juliet. Good point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anyone who cautions a slow I entry. You. I love you, too. Yeah. Let's get married. <laughs> <laughs> How about next week? How about tomorrow? <laughs> it's Pierre, though. I'm pretty sure that I would let Pierre do whatever he wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know? Yeah, I do. I don't think that he, his motivations could possibly go wrong at this point. Thinking about Natasha and Pierre and the way that they influence one another in this scene is really beautiful. The The story ends, the ending line before the epilogue, because he will never end. But the ending line is from Natasha. She says, no, no, it has to be so. 
right, Marie? It has to be so. And I don't know about you, but I can't, I can't help but hear young Pierre from the beginning of the novel. It has to be so was his refrain, and it wasn't necessarily all bad. We've emphasized all the bad parts of his deterministic view. He was very easily abused and manipulated because of this idea that everything had to be so, and he had no agency. But for Natasha, this is a, a 180 from her instinctive, passionate love of life. All of a sudden, she is uh, dependent on somebody else, and it looks really good on her. What did you think? Yeah, I I loved that. I love that that's how the section ends. And I love that it's echoing of Pierre. He, Pierre actually thinks about this himself. Mm. He compares his engagement to, well, it's not really an engagement. I don't know. What do you call it? His pseudo engagement to <laughs> Natasha, to his engagement to Helene. And he... He thinks to himself that he he didn't he doesn't feel anything like he did when he mm. was engaged to Helene and yeah. said, Why did I say why did I not say j'aime vous? Right. Mm-hmm. And instead he just repeats to himself Natasha's words. So I think it it's it had to be so, but with a difference. And I think that we've been kind of parsing out that difference for the past a thousand pages but this is it though I think this is it that it's not that it had to be so is bad in itself but it's he's he is bound but he's bound by a person uh the the opening of our reading for today um it says in chapter 16 Pierre's confusion had now almost vanished but along with that he felt that all his former freedom had also vanished And later it echoes that and says uh, he he knew that Natasha was in the room because he felt his freedom disappear. And so I think that's tied to it had to be so. He he is limited. He's intentionally bound to to, another individual person. Right, which makes it okay, which makes that dependency beautiful all of a sudden. He says at one point, completely different chapter, but same idea that we're kind of tracing here. He says to a servant of his, are you sure that you don't want your freedom from me? I will give you your freedom at a moment's notice. And he says, the servant responds, what do I need freedom for your excellency? And a little further down, one can live with such masters. And I thought tracing the idea of this, this freedom, but boundness that Pierre is experiencing, he's celebrating being bound to Natasha. I think maybe to because of what you're master. pointing out. To such a master. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To With one the, that you the love. Differences. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to one that is kind. The difference, uh, let's see, he uh, he says that uh, with like the difference with Natasha is that he is able to make a decision. It frees him, but it frees him to act unselfconsciously. He doesn't have to think or dither about his decisions anymore. He can just act whereas with Helen it had to be so he was bound but that made him completely passive like a non-person so the effect of a good master is just calls um, out the best life, in you right it's it's a it's an abundance of life yeah he says to her I'm not to blame that I'm alive and want to live and you do too an abundance of life and life full of love it's so beautiful I loved the description of Natasha coming alive to Pierre. She's thinking about him and the way that he looks, and he looks the same as he's always looked. Tolstoy has gone to great lengths to explain to us that he's still portly 
and <laughs> his clothes don't fit him very well. And he's not become more attractive over the course of the story. Oh, he's kind still, of a bad haircut. Yeah. Still looks like a thumb. Bad. <laughs> did we say that on this podcast? I don't know if we said that on this podcast. I'm glad we did just now. That was awesome. We but, think that Paul Dano looks like a thumb. <laughs> <laughs> a really kind thumb. <laughs> What Natasha says of him, though, is so beautiful. She says, you know, Marie, he's become somehow clean, smooth, fresh, as if from the bathhouse. You understand, morally from the bathhouse. <laughs> yep. That's beautiful. I love that. It is beautiful. I loved that Pierre, in, in um, retelling his story to Natasha, uh, first of all, we get the beautiful line that he He's telling it to her, and as he tells it, he realizes its significance that he hadn't, he wasn't really able to understand his own story until he shared it with her, mm -hmm. which is beautiful. Um, but he revisits uh, Kertiv's death, which was so terrible because because when it actually happened, he marched past and abandoned him and was clearly just you know trying to protect himself, but kind of thought the dog was was stupid to stay behind with him. But here it says, uh, he was killed almost in my presence. And Pierre began telling about the last period of their retreat, Kertiev's illness. His voice trembled constantly and his death. So he really does. Uh, I, I remember you saying that we were, we were actually supposed to take the part of the dog, right? The dog is actually the creature who is behaving in a creaturely inappropriate fashion. And it seems that Pierre is returning to that. So I don't know. I don't know why Tolstoy harped so much on disinterested love, because I don't know that he's necessarily refuting that. Well, I don't know if this will help, but he's certainly thinking on love and its qualities. And, and I think he's validating maybe both kinds of love, this general love for mankind and this individual particularized love. At the end of chapter 19, um, Pierre's thinking about how his love for Natasha is spilling out of him onto everyone that he interacts with. It's like a lens now that he looks through the world, through at the world. And he says, um, Basically, he says that he's ridiculous. It makes him ridiculous and insane in the way that he interacts with people. But looking back on the way that he acts in this week of being in love, he says, I understood everything that's worth understanding in life because I was happy. Pierre's insanity consisted in the fact that he did not wait as before for personal reasons, which he called people's merits in order to love them. But love overflowed his heart. And loving people without reason, he discovered the unquestionable reasons for which it was worth loving them. Hmm. Yep. But it even feels there, like a marrying of the two things. Like you yeah. love first because of the principle of love that all mankind is worth loving. And then it particularizes itself as you know people. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Well, even in this one, it seems to, it also, also seems to work the other direction that he particularly loves Natasha and that spills out into mm -hmm. love for other people. Yeah. It might be both. It feels like Tolstoy's playing with the idea, but not negating either one, which would be typical Tolstoy to basically have his cake and eat it too. He's like, it's a multiplicity of causes. Let's go. <laughs> so, do you think, okay, here at the end of all things, <laughs> when you revisit Andre, do you think that he's just like same theme, different, 
different melody. Idiom? I don't know. Like, <laughs> you mean with his assertion as he's dying that everything is love, and yet he's mm-hmm. cruel and cold. Well, and he's like, oh, I guess I'll say goodbye to my son because that would make them happy. <laughs> Yeah, I, that still doesn't sit well. I still hated that. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't have a smart thing to say about that. I just think that was really buggy. Couldn't he have rallied on his deathbed to be kind to his poor son, who will have this memory of him forever? But what does Pierre meditates on him here too? Doesn't he? He says, um, "And what happened at the end? He, he softened, right? He let's see, where was that? That was oh, towards the right. beginning. It's the first thing they talk about when he's reunited with the girls." Oh, yeah. End, end of the first page of chapter 16. So 1,113. Yes, yes. So he calmed down, softened. He always sought one thing with all the forces of his soul, to be fully good so that he could not be afraid of death. The shortcomings that were in him, if there were any, did not come from him. So he softened. So what is the difference between Andre and Pierre? Andre seeks after something with his whole soul, single-mindedly. He wants to be good so that he could die. Pierre, what does Pierre want that's different than that? I, this could be wrong. I don't know. It feels to me like Andre is, the word that Pierre uses with hope is that he softened. And when I think of Andre, I don't think of someone soft. I think of someone who's like, stiff and and straight and hard as a sword you know he's um he's obsessed with righteousness being vindicated and uh i don't know not fearing death because he's he's righteous i love that i never see that in pierre i think you're right andre had an overabundance of resolve Mm -hmm. and he didn't know where to direct it and Pierre, all Pierre is needed is a modicum of any kind of will. <laughs> right. Pierre needed a little bit of resolve. But he's, his emphasis has always been gentleness and compassion, and it's made him too malleable. So they seem like two extremes, and their various sufferings have brought them closer to some kind of middle ground, a mutual understanding. And they both come to love here at the end. Love is the... Uh, Natasha is the middle ground. Oh, good point. So that's yeah. interesting. Not just there's love about, particular, love for Natasha. Yep, there's something about Natasha's character that balances the hardness and the softness and as they both meet in the middle there. Could that be what the um, emphasis between the two being different? These two men were so different, and yet they're marvelous. Hmm. And Natasha loves them equally, and they find common ground loving her and... I don't know. She's she balances them out. Yeah, yeah. She is. I mean, what is she? She has no filter when it comes to her ability to enjoy life. So, what do you make then of her friendship with Maria? Because Maria seems to be this. She's a lot like Andre, actually. In her friendship with Natasha, she reminds me a ton of Andre. This, I don't know, steely moralistic presence but natasha appreciates it and says teach me to be good i don't want to be Mm -hmm. bad it kind of instills in her a moral conscience in a way that she didn't have one before they also talk about how when when they first started their conversation with pierre and pierre says every family has its grief maria says what would we do if we didn't have faith Mm. or like wouldn't it be terrible if we didn't have faith and natasha says it would (laughs) would. why (laughs) why 
she's all emotion, but not very thoughtful, <laughs> <Yeah>. intellectual. <laughs> but also, again, I'm going to come back around to how beautiful it is. She, in that moment, doesn't look at Mar- Maria. She looks at Pierre. She says, why? Why is it good to have faith? And he, using all of his grandiose philosophical ideas that were totally out of place in, a, in the drawing room scene at the very beginning of our novel, turns to her and says so succinctly, here's what faith is for. And you can tell she's going to follow him. And he has resolve and he understands and he was, he's ready to explain. You know, really beautiful. It is so beautiful. Well, what about, uh, what about Maria and Nikolai? Well, don't you just wonder? I mean, if this is really the conclusion, <laughs> think of how many characters we still don't know about. Maria and Rostov, Papa Rostov, and the Countess Rostov are both down on their luck and sinking lower all the time. We don't know about them. The last we heard about them was the death of Petya. And Tolstoy's really going to leave us right there? Surely not. Yeah. Seems like it. If you open the epilogue, ladies and gentlemen, you will be horrified to find that he doesn't mention them on the first page of the epilogue at all. <laughs> <laughs> Lo and behold, I bet you can guess what he does launch into. <laughs> I can't believe we're going again. I'm not ready. <laughs> uh, I wonder what the thought is here to end with an epilogue instead of another part. I mean, well, didn't you say at one point? I'm not going to know which episode it is, but hundreds of episodes ago (laughs) that Tolstoy was kind of against conclusions because he wanted his art to not just imitate life, but live and breathe. And life doesn't feel like it has a neat and tidy conclusion. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that said before. So he's just going to, he picks up in media race and he's going to drop us somewhere, somewhere. (laughs) That's going to be really annoying if that's what happens. This did feel... I mean, obviously, I want to know more. I want to know all about Pierre and Natasha and their married life and how that goes. And I want to know about all the other couples and the big Sonia question. Like, what what in the, the world Sonia is going to happen to Sonia? But it did feel like, as far as the big, juicy, thematic ideas that we have discussed, I think that this kind of, this is it. This puts a pin in the, the many conversations that we've had and everything like I would say that probably everything after is kind of the unraveling right the playing out of this major idea that he just gave us in this so part. this is the climax well that's an interesting question because then I would just have a conversation with Tolstoy about the structure of a story and say, you don't understand what an epilogue is. <laughs> this is the climax. You need to call the next part the denouement. <laughs> well, I wonder, I wonder if the climax, I mean, I can think of, a, maybe this is a conversation we should have because we're going to do a roundup of part four. There are so many conflicts going on in this novel, but there are probably a myriad of climactic moments. Of course. But it's always fun to kind of toss around what is the major question and when did that get resolved? Yeah, I know? think so. So that is what we're doing next. We're going to uh, take a break and kind of look back over where we've been in part four and uh, do our, our final recap before we head into the actual end of War and Peace. It's coming. The actual end. And I will say to Tolstoy at the very, very end, I'll be waiting very much for you <laughs> <laughs> to finish your story. Finally!
<laughs> I wonder how it could possibly, possibly end. What what more does he have to say to us that isn't about our characters? I just don't understand. <laughs> you know, he, I mean, I think I've said this before, but he did not intend to write this story. He actually intended to write about what comes after the War of 1812. There was kind of a an uprising of the people, a revolution of sorts, and he wanted to write about that. And then he kept... Like he was like, well, if I'm going to write about that, I need to write about what led up to it and then what led up to it and then what led up to it. And he just worked his way all the way back to Napoleon. And and here we are. But I do think that he ends the story where he intended to begin it. Well, that's fascinating. So he wrote War and Peace backwards? Of a sort. This guy's crazy. <laughs> Not that I, I do don't appreciate him. He, yeah, I know. I do think he might have been just a wee bit crazy. You know, but the the geniuses always are. What fun. Well, I can't believe that Ian wasn't with us today, and I'm excited to hear his thoughts next time. I'm sure that he will want to begin next time by by telling us all of his thoughts. Recapping. I wonder what he thinks about Princess Maria right now. I I bet that he's going to react strongly like you did. I think he is. He and I tend to react to this personality type the same. (laughs) 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 And Princess Maria, particularly the scene where... Pierre just won't leave. And you can tell that what he wants to do is explain himself to Natasha. And in the end, Princess Maria stands up, dismisses Natasha, sits down and clears her throat and just looks at him. I thought, well, she's becoming Andre. <laughs> it's like well, a little drawing yeah, well, room scene from Andre at the beginning. Now, Pierre, what's on your mind? You know? But I think Pierre wanted to talk to her. I want kind of like, like permission. She Maybe. Hmm. Like she is Andre. That's interesting. He's talked to her this way before, though, a couple times in the novel. He's confided in in Maria. I think that Nikolai is going to be very good for Princess Maria if they can get that I think she needs a Rostov. I do. Yep. Everybody needs a Rostov. Everybody needs a Rostov. (laughs) I think Ian's not here right now. In only the good ways, I think Ian is our Rostov. (laughs) I think you might be right about that. (laughs) Everybody needs... And Ian, okay? <laughs> he's not He's not profligate, though. No, I mean it only in the good ways. <laughs> only in the positive qualities of Rostov. <laughs> but in that, uh, like, you know, the joie de vivre, he's just, he's full of true. exuberance. He's just really he fun. would be delighted to know that, I'm sure. Well, we'll, uh, we'll gather next time to look back over where we've been in part four and prepare ourselves for the final push to the end of War and Peace. Woohoo! Congrats, you guys. Until then, my friends, uh, bon appétit. Bon appétit. Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.